Um, so one of the the projects that you're working on right now is is actually about this very thing, this sort of idea of risk seeking and risk avoidance, and how uh, different individuals might have different preferences for, you know, how much are you motivated by looking for you know, possible reward and how much are you motivated by avoiding possible losses? Um, can you tell us a little bit about, well, first, what do we know about differences between individuals in terms of risk seeking? Um, and then describe a little bit about how your research is going to, going to address this. So we know that in the general human population, the vast majority of people exhibit risk averse behavior, which is to say that if I give you a balanced gamble, so I say either you can walk away with here without gambling or you have a 50-50 gamble where half the time you're going to win $500 and half the time you're going to lose $500. Most people walk away, hmm. right? Even though the expected value or the mean outcome of those two options is the same. Oh, so the mean value is nothing. Is exactly. Oh, okay. Hmm. So the mean value is zero. You either walk away with zero or you take this 50-50 shot at winning or losing $500. Okay. Most people just take zero for sure. Huh. And in fact, they do these tests in people where they try to say, okay, well, how big does the upside have to be before people are willing to accept that loss? And the average person, the upside has to be twice as large as the downside before they're willing to accept the gamble. So it would have to be you can either walk away with nothing or the gamble is 50-50 shot at at $1,000 or losing $500. Okay. That's the tipping point for the average person. Sounds appealing. See? <laughs> um, Maybe we're just risk seekers. I don't know. I, I think I probably would walk away. <laughs> That's so funny. But there is a minority population of people who are risk seekers. And you know, this is an interesting question. Who are these people? What makes them risk seeking? What are they doing with their lives? Um, <laughs> seeking risks. <laughs> exactly. But it turns out there are some biological markers for this sort of thing. So Related to dopamine signaling, there is an allele of, there's a variant of the dopamine D2 receptor gene that some people have called the TAC-A1 allele. And this variant of the D2 receptor gene decreases the amount of the receptor that's expressed in the striatum by 30 or 40 percent. So it's a lot. It's a big difference. And those people tend to be much more um, risk-seeking, more they're more prone to addiction, to alcohol, to opiates, um, and they're also more prone to obesity, which is interesting. Huh. Mm. So, so basically, because they express dopamine receptors differently, they have a different attitude towards risk. Exactly. Wow. So, and it's and so that's very simple in a way. Yeah, and that is, it's that sort of line of research that led me to my thesis project, <laughs> which <laughs> is looking at. You know, establishing that, in fact, in many different animals, so this has been studied across a wide berth of the evolutionary tree. So this has been studied in honeybees and in stickleback fish and in songbirds and in shrews and in uh, lemurs. So I'm working in laboratory rats where in just like every, every other animal population that's been studied, the vast majority of rats are risk averse, but there is some small subpopulation that's risk seeking. And because we can do experiments in rats that are um, too high risk or sort of unethical to do in people, <laughs> um, we can do these more um, molecular level, cellular level experiments to try to parse out why are some of these rats risk seeking and is there anything we can do to change their attitude? 
the ratted. Sorry, I'm making T-shirts that say that. <laughs> is the is the genetic variation in the rats that you use in the lab? Is that an, do you think that's enough for some of them to? Well, I mean, we'll hear about your results, I guess. But do you think if you had a wild population, it would be you would have like a lot more risk-seeking rats or anything like that? There might be more variation in the general population. The nice thing about working in rats rather than mice, laboratory mice, is that laboratory mice um, are inbred to the point that we like to be able to claim that they're genetically identical, whereas Long Evans rats are just a strain of rat, mm-hmm. and they're not... So there's more genetic variation than you might expect from, say, C57 black six mice. Huh. Right. So lab, yeah, lab mice are all the same. Lab rats are like a real population of animals. <laughs> more so, yeah. To an extent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, in, I mean, in humans, we're talking about risk seekers. We're talking about, you know, gamblers or venture capitalists or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. What is, what is the, um, who are these rats? <laughs> <laughs> so these rats that are in my care, they, um, they really like things like chocolate and they like things like sugar water. They like sweet, sugary things. They will do anything you want for a Fruit Loop, seriously. <laughs> but, um, and so... What these rats do is that I train them so that they have the option to press one of two levers over and over again. And if they press one lever, they get the same size sugar water reward every single time. And that's the safe lever. Those are the ones who are just, you know, I'm I'm just going to have a, you know... Low-key job. I'm just going to get a regular paycheck. I don't, I don't need any excitement. I want, I want in my the life. American dream. Just a house. Right. <laughs> just it's a sure bet. I pick them up in the morning. Pull them out from behind the white picket fence. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the other lever is it has the same mean value, the same average value as the safe lever, but three quarters of the time it's just the tiniest drop of sugar water. Just to let them know that they, you know, did in fact press the lever. It's not broken. It's not broken. And one quarter of the time, it's this enormous payoff. And so uh, some very small population of the rats chooses that lever 80, 90% of the time. So they really like fail, 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 win, fail, fail, win, fail. Yeah. So they're either serial entrepreneurs or graduate students. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. So tell us about your experiment. So you you work in Carl Dysroth's lab, so that means you use optogenetics to control <laughs> the brain with light, and that's exciting. So how do you how are you attacking this question of how why these rats are risk seeking um, using that using those experiments? Yeah. So what this optogenetic technique lets me do is to um, pick out the cells that I'm interested in. And in this case, because of all the evidence from humans, we're looking at cells that express the D2 receptor. And then I can say, all right, well, I want to express a protein in those cells that lets me tell them exactly when they're supposed to fire or tells them exactly when to be quiet. And that way, if I train these rats so that they can gamble over and over and over again, but I can say, all right, I want the D2 cells to fire a whole lot right when they're about to make their decision, or I want those cells to be completely silent when they're getting the reward, then I can try to parse out, okay, at what point in the decision-making process are these cells' activity important for driving the decision? And so what we... So when can you actually manipulate what the rats are going to do? Right. So another way of saying that is, um, you know, maybe there's some points in the task where the activity of these cells doesn't really matter very much. And I can 
slam them as hard as I want, and it doesn't really matter because the rest of the brain is not listening to those cells. But maybe right before the rat makes his decision, or right when he figures out how big of a reward he got, maybe the activity of those cells is really important just right at that instant. Hmm. To figure out whether he cares about getting the juice or, you know, the, the surprise. Yeah, exactly. And so so what have you seen? Have you been able to, to you know, make those risk-seeking rats, like just humdrum rats? Or <laughs> what have you been able to do? <laughs> yeah, so so far what we're seeing is that if you take those risk-seeking rats and you stimulate the dopamine, neur- the D2 neurons, the ones that are listening for losses, right when he's about to make his decision, that those risk-seeking rats make far fewer risk-seeking choices. So we are, in fact, making... <laughs> the risk-seeking rats into more humdrum, defense <laughs> sort of rats. Yeah. Um, so you've now got control over gambling behavior. Um, what is, what does this teach you about about the way that the way that reward works, the way that dopamine works? I mean, so it seems very similar to to human behavior. Does this help us um, help us understand ourselves? <laughs> we're we're like, we're going deep here. <laughs> That's another big deep question. Um, I think part of what this research says is you might expect that it's the actual experience of the reward right in the moment that's driving people's behavior, like just the drinking down of all that sugar water, the coins spilling out of the slot machine, and that's what's driving people's behavior. But it seems like the most effective time to stimulate the neurons where you can have the biggest effect on rats' decision-making is actually right when the decision is happening, even if it's just a second or two after they got all that reward. If you stimulate during the reward, you can have a tiny effect on the rat's next decision. But if you stimulate while they're thinking about it, um, that's when you have this very large impact. So I guess, I mean, to me, that makes me think of two things. First of all, in the beginning, we were talking so much about all the confusion about, you know, at what stage of decision-making those neurons are important, and I guess you're helping us figure that out. But also, like, if we had to intervene with somebody's poor decision-making, now you're telling us that, you know, you have to be there at the moment a little bit, maybe? That's jumping a little too far ahead. Yeah, but also that that you want to be there as they're thinking. It's not yeah. just that, like, you've got to affect the the stimulus itself, but it's a process of, of evaluation. Yeah, so maybe it says that some sort of drug that just flattens people's affect or something might not be the way to go. Hmm. Right. Just dampening the experience of winning and losing overall doesn't impact their decision-making that much. So not only have you been using channel rhodopsin um, and activating these neurons or, you know, I, I don't know if you're silencing them too during the during reward-seeking, but um, you're getting a little bit bigger than, than that and trying to image the entire brain using functional MRI um, in combination with all these stimulation techniques. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the the motivation for doing... FMRI in rats is that fMRI is the technique of choice for analyzing activity in human brains, right? We can put people into one of these scanners and see um, how much oxygenated blood is flowing to different parts of the brain during all these different behaviors. And we can do that in a way that we can't use other neuroscience techniques in people. So we can't at the moment, record from individual neurons in people, and we can't arbitrarily place whatever drug we want into people's brains. Um, and that's a good thing. Right. <laughs> that's a good thing. But, um, but the fMRI signal, we don't yet have a good mapping from what the bolt signal looks like to what the neuron activity 
looks like. So the bold signal is this blood oxygen signal that says when neurons in the brain are active. So this is looking at these pictures of brains and showing, oh, this part of the brain lit up when you did X. Right? But we don't actually know what that means. Exactly. So every time you've flipped through a magazine and seen one of these pictures with a slice of the brain in the background and these big colorful blobs in front of it and the headline reads, you know, prefrontal cortex controls gambling behavior, that's a depiction of this bold or fMRI signal. So we don't know what the fMRI signal is really representing in the brain, but we use it a lot to study human brain activity. And so it's sort of an important intermediate step that we directly control the neurons in the brain, say in a rat brain, and then look at what that known activity does to the fMRI signal. And so there's multiple fields of study that use fMRI, so we'd like to know what's going on differently in the brains of people who have, say, depression from healthy controls, or what's going on differently in the brains of people who have schizophrenia or who have gambling disorder. And all these things involve All these disorders involve dopamine, but because dopamine doesn't directly drive spiking, it's a neuromodulator, like we were discussing, it's not obvious what dopamine should be doing to the fMRI signal. Hmm. So a lot of people would like to speculate when they do these gambling tasks or these neuroeconomic tasks that, oh, this signal must be due to dopamine because of everything we know about dopamine, but nobody's been able to show what dopamine does to the fMRI signal. Do we know anything? What do we know so far about what what neuromodulation and dopamine look like in the fMRI? Yeah, so so far what we're seeing is that if you stimulate the dopamine neurons in brainstem, first of all, we're not seeing a local signal in brainstem, even though we know for sure that those neurons are firing, which is interesting. It says something maybe about what the fMRI signal actually is. But we are seeing big signals in the areas that I've already mentioned. So we see a huge signal in ventral striatum or in nucleus accumbens, we see an enormous signal in dorsal striatum or the upper part of striatum, which is more related to motor behavior. We see some signal in prefrontal cortex, which is also interesting. Um, And the neat trick we can do then is say, okay, we have all this dopamine spilling all over the brain. What if we just block the D2 receptors? What if we just block the D1 receptors? What does that do? Um, And what we've been able to show is that if you do a cocktail, so if you block both D1 and D2 receptors, that bold signal almost disappears. Hmm. So So you can say that signal is actually coming from the dopamine. From the dopamine itself, right? Because the dopamine neurons, we call them dopamine neurons, but some of them are uh, promiscuous and they release (laughs) other types of neurotransmitters. They release excitatory neurotransmitters, inhibitory neurotransmitters. And so if you're, if you're evaluating this data critically, you might say, well, maybe that's just due to the excitatory neurotransmitter that dopamine neurons are also releasing, and dopamine doesn't do anything. But we can show that if we just block the dopamine receptors, the bold signal goes away. Yeah, and also that it seems to be, in many places, D1-specific. So D1 were the dopamine receptors that um, cause neurons to be excited in response to dopamine, whereas D2 are the ones that told neurons shh in response to dopamine. Um, And if you block just the D1 receptors, you see largely the same effect. So most of the fMRI signal that you're seeing is coming from the excitatory effect of dopamine. 
exactly. which kind of makes sense. Yeah. Right. It does make sense, but it makes interpreting all those neuroeconomic or reward-related fMRI stories a little bit... Um, it's a little. It adds some nuance to the interpretation because you might read something that says, you know, we see a dopamine-related bold response in response to reward, but not in response to losing. Well, maybe the bold response just doesn't pick up all that activity that's related to losing, right? right? Yeah, and so that makes the whole of, thing... <laughs> you're missing the whole risk-averse thing, which is a huge part of our, you know, the way that our brains work. Exactly. That we hate losing. <laughs> exactly. FMRI says we're all risk-seekers. <laughs> at least the only signal that matters is the one related to winning. Uh, right. So could you give us a picture of, like, what you're actually doing here? Like, how do you actually get... like So in human fMRI, these are these giant magnets that you slide a person into, and they've got to not move their head, and it's banging on the outside of a chamber <laughs> like you're inside a garbage can, and someone's got a mallet. <laughs> right. I mean, the, the, the FMRI... MRI is a big deal. I imagine you're not putting a rat inside a normal MRI. How do you actually do this? So, in fact, we do have a small animal fMRI. It's a very strong magnet. It's seven Tesla, whereas the average human magnet is maybe two or three. Most oh, is much stronger. Much stronger. Um, and it's the same sort of deal. We have a little platform for the rat, and we lay the rat down in this platform and slide him into the hole in the middle <laughs> of the magnet. Um the only difference is that whereas you can just tell a person, look, you're going to ruin the whole scan if you move your head, don't sneeze. <laughs> um, rats, you sort of have to train to be very, very still. And so over a period of a week or two, we put the rats in this little carriage. We put a little bit of pressure um, to try to keep them from moving their head, but they could still move their head if they wanted to. And then we play fake scanner noise, that banging on a trash can noise. <laughs> we recorded it from the fMRI, and then we put little speakers beside the rat's head. And then we just have them experience that sensation of being very still with this loud noise. And we sort of increase the duration of that training over a couple weeks while feeding them many, many Fruit Loops. <laughs> I feel like I might do this to my kids. <laughs> I don't know. Here's a Fruit Loop, don't move. Here's a Fruit Loop, don't move. We're going to play the quiet game. <laughs> yeah, and that works. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, and so that works kind of amazingly. Huh. Um, rats will sit still, completely still, for 45 minutes to an hour in that. the magnet. That's crazy. I don't sit still for Fruit Loops. <laughs> Yeah. Why, why are you using a stronger magnet for rats? So some places are using stronger magnets for people, but anytime you make something stronger, everybody gets worried. You know, is I the see. magnetic field going to do something horrible to the brain? Um, so the stronger the magnet is, the better your resolution. And so because the rat prefrontal cortex is much, much smaller than the human prefrontal cortex, if you want to say anything about where the activity is localized in the rat brain, you need that better resolution. Right. So as you shrink the brain down, you need to shrink your pixel size down, too. <laughs> exactly. Is there anything that fMRI researchers can do to, to be better about um, taking neuromodulating influences into account and looking in the activity that they're looking at? I mean, the reason we don't all do human neuroscience research is there's just a lot of limitations in the kinds of questions you can ask and the kind of techniques you can employ Nothing immediately springs to mind, mm. you know. Not everybody needs to be doing behavioral pharmacology in humans. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it's really cool that you can really start to um, to take apart these the mechanistic aspects of of the way that the the brain. I mean, one of the real advantages of doing animal work is that you can start 
turning on and off particular parts of the brain and saying, what does this do to the animal's behavior and what does this look like? So connecting that to the way that we try to understand the human brain seems super important. Yeah, we think so. We're hoping. (laughs) We're hoping that that helps people better understand the human brain as well. Okay, Kelly, so we're now going to take a little break, play our game. Um, we've decided that we now have a prize for our game, which is that you get another drink. Um, <laughs> um, so the game is called Not My Field, um, and basically we are going to we're gonna read to you three titles of uh, scientific papers, and you have to determine which of those three is a real scientific paper and which two we completely made up. Oh, good. Uh, and there are going to be three rounds to this game, so you just have to get two out of three. Are you uh, are you ready to play? Ready as I'm gonna be. Okay, fantastic. Hey, did you want to go first? Sure. Okay. Round one. So so each of these have a theme this time. Uh, so the first theme is booze, which Good. is appropriate. All right. So I'm gonna give you the three. So A, the title is Wine Before Beer: A Comprehensive Investigation of the Relationship Between Order of Consumption of Alcoholic Beverages and Subsequent Levels of Intoxication and Consequent. Oh my God! I can't even say this. Visalgia hangover. Okay. B, glass shape influences consumption rate for alcoholic beverages. That's the short one. Okay. C, past the fermented berries, social consumption of ethanol in the American black bear, Ursus americanus. The question is, which one's real? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with A. A. Yeah. Okay. The answer is actually B. Ooh. Um... A, A sounded like it should be real, right? Like that rhyme that we all know. No, uh, B. Okay, so the this is actually from an article in PLOS One uh, two years ago, 2012, and the abstract reads, high levels of alcohol consumption and increases in heavy episodic drinking, binge drinking, are a growing public concern due to their association with increased risk of personal and societal harm. Alcohol consumption has been shown to be sensitive to factors such as price and availability. The aim of this study was to explore the influence of glass shape on the rate of consumption of alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages. And the conclusions were that participants were 60% slower to consume an alcoholic beverage from a straight glass compared to a curved glass. This effect was only observed for a full glass and not a half-full glass, and was not observed for a non-alcoholic beverage. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I thought it was just like... Look, we are disproving yeah, this study. Actually, true. We're completely disproving this. Yeah. Ada is drinking from a curved glass and is not doing her job <laughs> in drinking this I'll work beverage. on it. <laughs> She's drinking from a concave glass. That's true. It's a I little think bit that's different. what they're talking about. So, I don't it's know. a curved glass. No, I don't know. Um, participants also misjudged the halfway point of a curved glass to a greater degree than that of a straight glass. And there was a trend towards a positive association between the degree of error and total drinking time. Mm, so if you want to get people really drunk, give them some curved glasses. <laughs> All right. Okay. So you didn't, you didn't get round one, booze. That's okay. We've got two more rounds. The second round is anthropomorphism. <laughs> I specialize in anthropomorphism. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So number one. Chickens prefer beautiful humans. Number two, pretending to be a bat improves echolocation performance in humans. And three, measuring feline IQ, strong effects of variable motivation. Wow. (laughs) How do you pretend to be a bat? That's excellent. (laughs) I'm going to go with C. C, measuring feline IQ. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll read you from the abstract. We trained chickens to react to an average human female face, but not to an average male face, or vice versa. 
In a subsequent test, the animals showed preferences for faces consistent with human sexual preferences <laughs> obtained from university students. This suggests that human preferences arise from general properties of nervous systems rather than from face-specific adaptations. I don't, face-specific adaptations. We discuss this result in the light of current debate on the meaning of sexual signals and suggest further tests of existing hypotheses about the origin of sexual preferences. But what I take away from this is that the chickens are checking us out. <laughs> Maybe. <Kinda> creepy. Maybe <laughs> it's like the counting horse. The chickens are watching for oh, your yeah. reaction. Like oh. yeah. yeah, I wonder. They have done a clever, a clever chicken experiment with this. That's very. That's I very. Know funny. Double blind. This is why. Yeah, we was have... this double blind? <laughs> exactly. This is why we have big Nobel prizes. <laughs> All right. Well, you've got you've got one more chance. You've got one more question. Okay. All right. Round three. The theme is medical mayhem. A. Manipulation of fractured nose using mallet and champagne cork. B, self-administration of Elmer's glue correlated with attention-seeking behavior in pre-adolescence. <laughs> and C, sense and sensuality, comparative pheromone profiling of males versus females using Maldi-Toff analysis. Jesus. <laughs> that should be easier than it is. <laughs> so what did we have? What was the first one? Manipulation of fractured nose using mallet and champagne cork. That's horrible. <laughs> Oh, dear. I'm hoping you made that one up. <laughs> so it seems doubtful. <laughs> I'm going to go with C. C? Maldi-Toff analysis. All right. Reading from the abstract. Uh, we describe an alternative method of manipulating fractured nasal bones. Sorry. <laughs> Cruel, right? Use, using a surgical mallet and a champagne cork. This method enables accurate fracture reduction with minimal skin trauma by affording the surgeon a high level of control. Well, this... I'm, feeling be- I'm feeling better now that I know that it's a surgical mallet and not like a rubber mallet. <laughs> you can either drive tent stakes or correct someone's nose. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Cool. Well, I'm I'm sorry you didn't you didn't get any of those, but it's all right. You're in good company because Craig Heller had exactly the same experience. <laughs> and you can have another drink anyway. It's fine. <laughs> we're, not, we're not looking. Was it was was the prize that you have to have another drink or that you oh I don't you know don't get another drink I don't, I don't remember you might as well have another drink. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I wonder. I feel like we. I feel like we need to. We need to adjust this game a little bit. It's getting a little too. I high. think. I think we're getting too creative. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, because in the playing at home version, I've done okay. Oh, really? There's yeah. a playing at home version. Well, when you're listening to our oh. show, of course, as I, <laughs> as I know you all are. <laughs> it's a self-fulfilling statement. <laughs> yeah. All right. 